Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Let's turn to 2 Samuel then, 2 Samuel chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 21. I want to try and show us again, as we enter what feels and seems like a strange world, how similar this world is to our world, and how God is speaking to us about it. So let's hear... God's word together. Second Samuel chapter 3, reading from verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahaniam of Jezreel. And his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephathiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithraim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David... Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth, remember the king, Ishbosheth, the king in the north, said to Abner, Why have you got in to my father's concubine? And then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. Remember, Abner has been loyal up to Ishbosheth until now. Now he is switching sides to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, this is David, said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, for for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. 
but her husband Paltiel went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, let's do it. Bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. Then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Amen. <clears throat> Last week, friends, when we looked at chapter 2, I tried to help us see that there were nuggets of gold scattered all the way through the chapter and one piece of buried treasure. You can listen to it online if you missed it. Scattered nuggets of gold and one piece of buried treasure. And this morning I want to do the same thing with chapter 3, but I want to change the picture a little bit as we look at it. Sprinkled all over this chapter, not nuggets of gold this morning, but blotches of darkness. All through this chapter, there are patches of darkness, and yet there is one shaft of light. One shaft of light. Some of us are sitting in that this morning, aren't they? The sun is coming through the window, and the sun is falling right in one particular place, not in all the room, in one particular place. That is what happens in chapter 3. Last week, the treasure was in one word, Bethlehem. Here again, the shaft of light is in one word. I wonder if you spotted it as we read. But I think we need to change the image, don't we, from gold, gold nuggets to dark valleys. Because chapter 3, this is a brutal chapter. A brutal chapter. Now, for once, the blood isn't flowing in Second Samuel. No bloodshed here yet. It's a welcome change. But make no mistake, friends, chapter 3 is a brutal chapter. This is the messy kingdom. And here is the awful, shocking, brutal thing about this part of the Bible, friends. This is God's kingdom, chapter 3 is describing. This is not a picture of the outside world. No, this is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ behaving like this and acting like this and carrying out actions like this. These are our ancestors in the faith. And this is a very, very dark place. And in the darkness there is light. Light. What kind of light is here? Let me, let me just give us, first of all, the four bits of darkness in the kingdom before we come to the light. I think it's always the case, isn't it, that light shines brighter for having been in the dark, first of all. Here are four parts of the story that are bleak, grim, tragic, sorrowful. And I think each of us in different ways have felt 
some if not all of these kinds of darkness touch our lives at some point maybe this morning no one else knows but you are right in the heart of darkness here's the first one number one look at the mess of a kingdom that needs patience and perseverance Look at the mess of a kingdom that needs patience and perseverance. It's very easy to read parts of the Bible, isn't it? And to to pass over them because it's hard to empathize with what the characters must have been going through in that particular moment. We we tune out. Now, now not all of our passages like that, is it? I think some bits of it we tune into immediately. What did you make of this poor fellow in verse 15? Paltiel, the son of Laish, because the man with power says, I want my wife back. And Ishbosheth takes Michal and takes him off her new husband, the man that she had married. Do you ever, some of you will have seen the Tom Hanks film Castaway. Do you remember? He spends all those years, he's about to get married, his plane crashes, he spends all those years on the island. And at the end of the film, you see him reunited with the woman that he was to marry, only now she is married somebody else. It is an astonishingly powerful moment in the film. Here is Paltia. Look at him. His wife taken from her. He went weeping, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. There, There are some parts we tune into and we feel the emotion, and there are other bits that we pass over too quickly, but they are packed full of emotion. Chapter 3, verse 1 Look at the opening words. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And we read it and raced forward, didn't we? Imagine friends living through a long war. A long war. Do you remember COVID? The days that we thought would never end. March 2020, the the curtains came down on our world. I remember meeting somebody in all those segregated walks and distanced walks. I remember meeting somebody in, I think, April or May in Seton Park, somebody from church. And the the person in church said to me, I've heard this might go on even until July. And I thought, no, no, not July. And it just kept going, didn't it? On and on. We were in the darkness of winter, the the days we thought would never end. Friends in Ukraine living through a long attritional war while most of us have moved on mentally and emotionally. Here here is God's king, chapter 3, verse 1. God's king, the one that God had spoken to and said to him, you will be king over Israel and over Judah. You will be the sovereign over all my people. That was the promise. And here is David who is that king fighting. And who is he fighting He's fighting the other half of the people of God, the people who were meant to be on his side, his own people. This is not a war between the people of God and the enemies of God. It's a a civil war. And it is attritional and long and bitter. We know, don't we, that if righteousness exalts a nation, there are few things that so debase a nation than to tear itself apart in war. Listen to John Calvin. He says this in chapter 3, verse 1. Surely David could have thought this several times to himself. My kingdom is actually cursed by God. 
because I see the people torn into pieces, would it not be better for me to withdraw so that there can be union and peace? Yet he remained constant, for he had to follow the calling of God. Oh, friends, patience and perseverance are easy to spell, but very hard to live, aren't they? Easy to spell, but hard to live. Yet David remained constant. It's easy to say it. Have you ever tried to remain constant in the mess of church splits and church fallouts? Some of you today know of people who have stayed, haven't they, all their lives in dead and dying churches, and they've stayed praying for decades for a godly minister to come and for the ministry to have new life breathed into it again. Praying and praying and praying and waiting and waiting, and the the wait is long. Oh, brothers and sisters, maybe you need to hear today, simply as we begin to look at this, that God seems to deal in periods of time, doesn't he, that, that seem to go a long way in the wrong direction. God seems to deal in periods of time that go a long way in the wrong direction. And if you cannot see the light in that darkness, you will give up. So what was the light that David could see? Why did he not despair in the long war? Number two, the second blotch of darkness. Look at the mess of a kingdom shot through with sinful relationships. Look at the mess of a kingdom that is bursting at the seams with sinful relationships. Yes, David is on the right side of history. It is is the house of David, not the house of Saul, that has God on its side, that is going to triumph. And yet, friends, yet... Oh, the mess. Oh, the mess. Look at verse 2. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn, Amnon of Ahaniram of Jezreel, one woman. His second, Chiliab of Abigail, second wife, the widow, widow of Nabal. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, a third wife. This time, She is a Gentile woman, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. David is not just taking multiple wives. He is taking wives from outside the people of God. The fourth, Adonijah, the fifth, the sixth, and so on. Do you see the sinful relationships? More than one wife. The Old Testament did not forbid polygamy, but it did not commend it. The pattern was clear from Genesis onwards. And the king in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, the king is explicitly told not to take many wives. And sometimes we read Old Testament narrative like this and we look at it. And and as you're reading it, I hope you were feeling this. Multiple wives, concubines, women being taken off their husbands. And we say to ourselves, where is the explicit condemnation from the narrator about what is going wrong here? We're looking for the moral code, aren't we? And sometimes, friends, there are different ways of making the same point. The narrator is simply saying to us, does this look healthy to you? Does this look like it's going to end well? 
Not a Jewish wife, verse 3, a wife from the northern tribes. Abner, verse 13, is using the dead king's concubine. And now in verse 13, as part of political bartering, David is asking for his first wife back from Saul's kingdom. Saul, you might remember the book of 1 Samuel. Saul sinfully took Michal off David. And now David is asking for her back. And as part of asking for her back, he is breaking another man's heart. This is a world where women are being used as sexual playthings, as political pawns to cement political alliances. Perhaps with some real love and affection thrown in as well. Many many commentators think David does love this woman, at least in part. But look, friends, it's a mess. It's just a mess. Listen to Walter Chantry on chapter 3, verse 2. He says this, This is an ugly feature of David's domestic life. As a result of what he does, this is going to create family squabbles. We're going to see that. And these actions in chapter 3 are going to bring David to the brink of ruin and to long-lasting sorrow. Ah, we say, but it's the world. It's the world's relationships. No, it's the church. This is God's people. This is God's king. Brothers and sisters, can I say this this morning? Until the Lord Jesus comes again, we will see relational ruin mar the landscape of the kingdom. You will see as much mess in the church as outside the church, sadly. You will see sex and power derail the ministries of the best of men alongside the weakest of men. You will see darkness and mess in the kingdom. And when you do, where do you look? Where's the light? More darkness. Sorry, patience please as we look at The darkness. Darkness number three. Look at the mess of a kingdom being used for personal gain. The mess of a kingdom being used for personal gain. I I think that is the standout feature of chapter three. Personal gain. David is using these women to consolidate his power. If you want to make yourself strong in the ancient world, you marry much and have many children. Build your empire. Build your house. Taking back Michal is a political statement as much as anything else. Abner is the same, verse 7. Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you slept with my father's concubine? In a royal family, to have sexual relations with the, ki- the concubine of the king was understood as an assault on the king's position. It is a power move to take what belongs to the king. It's why the king Ishbosheth is so upset. He doesn't care less about Rizpah, does he? He cares that Abner thinks he's really in charge and can do whatever he wants. That he can take what belongs to the king. And he's upset, but he's so weak and so impotent that when he confronts Abner, Abner simply says, you sit down, son. I'm switching sides from this point onwards. I'm going to David's side. I don't need you anymore, Ishbosheth. 
We, we need this help, don't we, to, to see this. You know, I, I'm sitting at my desk on Friday and I'm trying to put a week's thought and study into, co- into coherent sermon form about political power at the, at the drop of a dime, switching sides and doing U-turns. And I'm thinking, how on earth do I get the, the truth of what God is saying and show it displayed in our world so that we see our world is exactly the same as this? And I'm sitting at my desk scripting this and clicking between uh, my typing and BBC News. And you, you, you cannot script it, can you? By Friday lunchtime, we have one of the biggest, most awful, humiliating U-turns, even by our modern politician standards. Quasi-Quarteng is deposed and the Prime Minister does a complete U-turn on her policies that she said she would never U-turn on. Really, we think, really, does that happen? Yes, we think. We've got Second Samuel open in front of us. What do you know? Human beings will do the funniest things. Human beings will do the strangest things to hold on to power. The most awful of things to grasp power for themselves. What, what, what do you think of a man like Abner, verse 9? God do to Abner and more if I do not accomplish for David. Your enemy, Ishbosheth, if I do not help David now get the throne, I used to help you, now I will help him. Would you like to work for him? Would you trust him? In a weak kingdom, one man growing strong. Let me show you the worst thing about him. Here's number four, the, the fourth patch of darkness. Look at the mess of a kingdom full of misguided human strength and power. The mess of a kingdom full of misguided human strength and power. You see, littered through the story in chapter 3 are these little types of clues about the the type of mess that Abner brings. Look at verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David... Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. It's a bit like the questions to Jeremy Hunt this morning, isn't it? Who's really running the country, you or Prime Minister Truss? In office, but not powerful. And yet here is Abner in that weak house, making himself strong. It's interesting, isn't it? Not not growing stronger, but making himself strong. And some people just know how to do that, don't they? They manipulate and plan and scheme and they, they lurk in the shadows and they watch what's happening. A whisper here, a bit of deceit over there, a bit of flattery in that corner. And they make themselves elevated, strong, powerful. And when that happens, friends, then you end up in the tragedy of verse 9. Look at the wording again. Can you hear a proud man speaking? God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. What do we want to say to Abner? Can you hear yourself, Abner? I'm going to do for David what God has said he will do for David. I'm going to do for God what God said he will do. Here is the news flash, Abner. God does not need you. God does not need you. 
God doesn't need you to do what he has said he will do. Who do you think you are? But look how it reaches a climax in verse 12, as if all of this wasn't enough. Abner sent messengers to David. Let's, let's talk, David. To whom does this land really belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, the Lord's hand will be with you. No, behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. You know when David fought Goliath, what did he say to Goliath? The Lord will give the Lord will give you into my hand. The, the true king knows his hand is nothing without the Lord doing the giving and the doing. And Abner says it is my hand. Abner is obsessed with his own hand, his own strength, his own ability to be kingmaker and a playmaker in the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, I want, to, I want us to take that time the time that we've just spent to enter the darkness of the kingdom because all of us have been there at some point, haven't we? And if you haven't yet experienced any one of those types of darkness, one day, live long enough, friend, you will. Some of us still live there, don't we? We are patiently persevering this morning. Patiently persevering. Some of us are living with the painful consequences of relational choices we would give anything to undo if we could. Sexual sin that seems to follow us like a shadow wherever we go. Some of us have been wounded, wounded haven't we, by the politics of the kingdom. Wherever we are today, we all want to know, don't we, where is the light? Where is the light? Have you seen it in this chapter? Amazingly, twice it comes from Abner's lips. From Abner's own lips. Last week, the treasure was one word, Bethlehem. This week, the light is in one word, promise. Promise. The entire sermon, friends, was given to the children in advance. It's amazing how many people tell me the children's talk is the best bit of a Sunday morning. It's the bit where it all comes together. They see it clearly. Forget Abner's own terrible relationship with the truth. The fact is that he still speaks the truth. Again, friends, verse 9. God do to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David, that is what is wrong. God doesn't need you. But here is what is right. What the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. God has promised David that he will be king. Light, truth, beauty, hope. In the midst of all the mess, friends, light, beauty. Look at verse 10. I will transfer this is the Lord speaking, the kingdom from the house of Saul. I will set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. <clears throat> Both kingdoms, north and south, <coughs> excuse me, together. <clears throat> this is not just a promise for David about the southern kingdom that he lives in. It is the north and south together united. That is what God has promised that the kingdom will be David's and he will rule and reign. 
Listen to this. Listen to these beautiful words. This is from uh, a theologian called Lewis Smeads. He said this years ago. I, I, I want us to get inside this this morning, friends, to think about the word promise. He said this, The future of the human family rides the fragile fibers of a spoken promise. The future of the human family rides the fragile fibers of a spoken promise. Have you ever thought, friends, how amazing it is that a man and a woman stand at the front, in front of witnesses, and in a few short moments and a few short words, speak words that change the future forever for them? Here's what this theologian says. There is one thing, one thing only that assures us that the cosmos will not eventually turn itself into a stinking garbage heap. Only one thing affirms that the human romance will have a happy ending and that the earth will be populated one day by a redeemed family living in justice and shalom. The thread by which everything hangs is a promise spoken and not forgotten. Brothers and sisters, messy kingdom, yes. Messy kingdom, yes. But the kingdom hangs by an unbreakable thread. A promise spoken to Abraham, I will, I will be <clears throat> your God, and you will be my people. <clears throat> Thanks. I think I need a glass of water, don't I? I will be your God and you will be my people. To David, you will be king. A promise spoken to the Lord Jesus, I will be with you forever. You are my son, with you I am well pleased. The promise of the Lord Jesus to us, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm going to my Father to prepare a place for you and I will come and take you to be with me where I am. I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, when you make a promise, you tie yourself, don't you, to other people. Thank you. When you make a promise, you tie yourself to other people, don't you, with the unseen fibers of loyalty. You, you agree to stick with the people you are stuck with. That's what a promise is, isn't it? When everything else around everybody else tells them that they can count on nothing, because you've spoken a promise, they can count on you. When they do not have the faintest notion of what in the world is going on around them, they will know that you are going to be there with them, come what may, through thick or thin. A promise creates a small sanctuary of trust within a jungle of unpredictability. I want to say to us this morning, friends, brothers and sisters, do you know that in the mess of the kingdom and in the mess of the world and in the mess of your life, God made an appointment with himself to see you through it? That's what God has done, made an appointment with himself in the future, to be there to see us through whatever it is we're going through. God's spoken words are a sanctuary of trust in a world of unpredictability and brokenness and relational, spiritual, sexual mess. Messy kingdom, yes, 
but true promises always. I want to say to you this morning, whether I know you well or whether I don't know you well, I know this is true, that your own story this morning is not too messy for Jesus. Your own story is not too messy for Jesus. That's really all I want to say in a way. Some of you will want to say back to me, you you don't know me, David. You don't know what I've done, what I've been through. You don't know what I've left at home today. You don't know what's happened in my house, what I've done, where I've come from. Can I say to you, well, maybe. But are you going to tell me it's worse than this? Worse than what we've read here? Sex? And money and power and relationships. What else is there? It's all here. Let me, let, let me tell us, friends, in this world there is only mess. There is only mess as we limp our way to heaven as broken people who, who Jesus has come to heal. That the whole point of this sorry, sordid mess here in chapter 3 and the twisted tale of devious political machinations and human strength, the whole point of it is to show us that when someone decides to tell us the story of God himself coming to our world in the Lord Jesus to save us, it really, really is this world that he comes to, our world. It is your world that he comes to redeem, my world. There is only one perfect person in the world and it is not you. It is not me. That's why he came. To put right a world of wrong and to offer up to his father his one perfect obedient life so that he could say to his father what Adam should have said to him in the garden. Here I am. I have come to do your will and your will alone. The true king gives to God his perfect life so that God can take from us all of our imperfect lives and lay them all on Jesus' shoulders for him to pay for it for us all. A swap takes place. He takes our mess and he gives us his perfection. Do you know the old saying, God writes straight with crooked lines? You know that saying, God writes straight, but with crooked lines. Your life, my life, life to us is a maze, isn't it? Or a valley of the deepest darkness. Or our lives sometimes are a pit of our own making. Or a cauldron of conflict, not of our own making. And it feels like we're going in circles and round and round and all seems lost. 2 Samuel chapter 3 says, friends, yes, that may be the mess of the kingdom, but God has made an appointment with himself in the future. He has spoken a promise to be the same God at the end of it all as he was at the beginning of it all, and a promise to lead us home to him. Amen.